Hi everyone, my name is Melissa, and every other week I'll be walking you through one crime from one country in Asia. Not only will we discuss the crime itself, we'll also show how it relates to historic Western perspectives on the region. Welcome to episode 6 of the show. I want to shout out my newest Apple podcast reviewers, Humbert87, Sunshine Mad, and Anachronistic1777. But I also want to shout out my incredible Patreon supporters, Bradley Morris, True Crime Fan Club, and Toxwea. Thank you so much for your monthly donations. Before I dive into our main crime, I actually want to address one of the stories we told in our last bonus episode, available to Patreon supporters for as low as $1. Please skip ahead if you're not comfortable hearing about violence against children. In doing research on other crimes in Pakistan, my co-writer Katya brought up the serial murders of several children in the region of Kasur. She explored the recent string of discovered bodies, as well as the potential connection to other child assault cases and the wealthy family rumored to be masterminding the attacks. It was a lot, and right after we released the episode, right after violent protests in Pakistan, the police arrested a suspect. The 24-year-old Imran Ali has been named as a serial child killer and rapist. Right now, media seems to lean against any idea of Imran being part of some kind of conspiracy, but there's still a lot that'll develop in the next few weeks, and we'll likely do a wrap-up episode after our trial's happened. Now, the main story in this episode is from China, the country that I grew up in, although this case took place very far from my home city. Everyone knows that China is huge. It neighbors countries as diverse as Mongolia, India, Vietnam, and Kazakhstan. Despite this, we often think of China as ethnically homogenous. However, China has a large number of ethnic groups. 56 of these are recognized by the government. I'm a little vague on whether or not there are more that aren't recognized, or if this is just the sum total. But regardless, the majority of the Chinese population is made up of Han Chinese. After that, the largest number of minorities include the Zhuang from the south, the Muslim minority Hui, the Manchus, and the Uyghurs. I want to really emphasize that these groups are physically, culturally, and linguistically diverse. Obviously, the Han Chinese are the face of China, but being that there's an unfortunate stereotype of East Asians being robotic, unfeeling, or all the same, it's important to keep that diversity in mind. Actively recognize and correct that stereotype when you see it. But this episode is not just about the Han Chinese. It's about the Uyghurs also, primarily, whose existence has only been acknowledged by Western press in recent years. Many people still don't know about their existence, and the count of their population varies from 11 million to 15 million in China alone. There are tens of thousands of Uyghurs spread across other countries. Now, there was a Penn Faulkner Award-winning novel in 2014 about a Uyghur Muslim woman called Preparation for the Next Life. But otherwise, mainstream acknowledgement of the community comes from reports of violence and unrest. Today, we're going to explore the assassination of a religious figure, why it happened, how it happened, and where it fits in the timeline of modern Chinese history. But there's a lot of background. First of all, who are the Uyghurs? They're predominantly Sunni Muslim and have a mixed Eurasian ancestry. 
Their unique look has actually made them popular in the Chinese modeling industry because they have a foreign appearance but can communicate perfectly in Mandarin. Today, most of them live in the northwesternmost part of China, Xinjiang. Now, when Mao Zedong founded the People's Republic of China in 1949, he officially designated Xinjiang as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. However, there is an ongoing conflict about whether parts of Xinjiang should even be considered part of China. This is known as the Xinjiang Conflict, and it's a source of friction between the separatist Uyghurs and the Chinese government. See, in the mid-1990s, the USSR helped Uyghur dissidents establish the East Turkestan Republic. Since that area was absorbed by the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, this is viewed by some as an illegal occupation. By 1997, the tensions between the Uyghur community and the Chinese authorities rose to a head as they witnessed their first major act of violence. In February of 1997, news spread that 30 dissidents were executed for speaking out. What exactly they said or did has not been recorded so far as I can tell, but following the execution were two days of protests, where fatal clashes with the police were termed the Gulja Massacre. The reports varied. The press reported it as nine deaths as a result, but anecdotally, from activists on the scene, it was up to 100 deaths. This was followed by two bus bombings, one in Xinjiang and one in Beijing. The next major incident happened almost a decade later in 2008, the same year as the Beijing Olympics. In the Uyghur community, the year had been fraught with protests, activist arrests, and murders. It was also reported that militant Islamists had been quietly recruiting Uyghur youth. In 2009, there was a riot based on accusations of Uyghur factory workers raping Han Chinese women, and nearly 200 Han Chinese people died as a result. So far as I can tell, nothing effective was done to address the animosity between the two groups. Tensions continued into March 2014, where China experienced what some netizens termed their 9-11. In Kunming, in the Yunnan province, eight separatists ran into a railway station with knives and cleavers. The scene was so chaotic that the police had to use tear gas to try to subdue the attackers. In the end, 31 people were killed and 143 were injured. Until this attack, the government had been kind of sweeping Uyghur dissatisfaction under the rug. The issue was relevant to those who were in Xinjiang and not really anywhere else. But this happened in Yunnan, a 50-hour drive away from Xinjiang province. Four months later, another large-scale attack occurred. There were several diverging accounts about what actually happened, but according to some, there was a response to police crackdowns in the village of Hotan. Others said that there was a protest gone wrong based on Ramadan restrictions. Another theory is that this was a premeditated attack on a police station because a prominent Uyghur family was killed. The Chinese government simply reported it as a straightforward terrorist attack by separatists. The area was shut to foreign journalists, and what we do know is that 100 people died in this attack. And just two days after that bloodbath came another attack. One much smaller in scale, but in my mind, a perfectly tragic microcosm of the ongoing battle. At 6.58 a.m., Wednesday, July 30th, 
74-year-old Juma Tayyir was returning home from leading the Fajr prayer at Idka Mosque, the largest mosque in China. You can still visit it today in Kashgar, an ancient city right at the border of China, Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Tajikistan. Tayyir was the imam, having been appointed to the role by the Chinese Communist Party. Side note here that the Chinese government appoints most religious leaders, paying them a salary. As Tayyir exited the prayer hall, he was ambushed and stabbed to death. A French tourist witnessed the attack and reported that they saw two men running away from the scene of the crime. According to English language reports, the tourist seemed to be the only witness to the actual attack, but almost immediately, local shopkeepers opening for the day noticed the imam lying in a pool of his own blood and quickly called for the police and the media. Once the crime was confirmed by the authorities, roads were shut down, preventing any movement in the city, what officials do worldwide during suspected terrorist attacks. Given the events of the past two days and the victim's religious position, it's no surprise that the police ruled out that this was a case of interpersonal drama. And then they cut off the internet, effectively issuing a media blackout. Because of this, it's hard to confirm all the details of what transpired. According to reports, it appeared that the killers remained in the area. Because by noon of that day, just five hours later, the police cornered the three suspects. The men, Turgong Tursun, Mehmetjan Yimtala, and Nurmamet Abdali resisted arrest with the knives and axes that they had used during the attack. Tursan and Yimtala were shot and killed, while Abdili, only 19 years old, was taken into custody. Just based on their names, it was clear that the attack had been perpetrated by members of the Uyghur community. At the time of the capture, the only statement the police made was that the three young men were extremists who wanted to increase their influence by, quote, doing something big, unquote. The implication here was that they were part of the separatist movement. The crime itself purposely seemed to echo another extremist attack more than a decade ago. Tahir's predecessor had almost been assassinated in the exact same spot in 1996. Imam Arogan Haji, 76, and his son were attacked by knives after morning prayers. Haji was stabbed 21 times in the head, although he managed to survive. Within the next two days, authorities tracked down the so-called mastermind behind the crime, an 18-year-old hiding in the village of Hotan, the same Hotan that was rumored to have started the violent riots earlier that week. Aini Aishan grew up in the same township as Abdali, the surviving attacker. After graduating from junior high, Aishan made a living as a construction worker. At either 16 or 17 years old, he fell in with a group of underground Muslim extremists. Following his capture, Aishan commented, My brother told me not to join any illegal religious groups, or I would get caught and bring trouble to our family. Earlier in 2014, Abdili had reached out to Aishan to learn more about his religion. Whether this was because he knew of Aishan's networks is unclear, but according to Abdili, he had never even heard of the concept of jihad until joining Aishan in Hotan. After being initiated into the group, Aishan told Abdili that Imam Juma Tayyir had misinterpreted the Quran and that killing Tayyir would raise Abdili's profile. 
just months after joining Aishan, Abdili went out and murdered Tahir. A third teenager, whose details I can't find online, was arrested and given a life sentence for participating in the planning. Abdili and Aishan were both sentenced to death. In Abdili's confession, he would say, I don't remember carrying the knife or how I did it. My mind went blank. Now, whether Aishan had come up with this idea himself, or he was instructed to by other group leaders, the motive itself was clear. For those aware of Tayyir's reputation in life, his death sent a strong message that Uyghurs needed to choose sides, either pro-government or pro-separatist. See, Tayyir was a longtime supporter of the Chinese Communist Party, and a divisive figure in the Uyghur community as a result. One local school teacher described that Tayyir had turned the mosque into a Communist Party propaganda school. It's true that Tayyir had taken the government's side in the 2009 riots, condemning any and all violence from the Uyghur community, but he was also a respected religious figure at the same time. He was, at one point, the vice president of the China Islamic Association. There's no doubt that some people thought he was a shill, but there's also no doubt that he was a figure many others revered. Tayyir promoted peace, although some would say at the expense of Uyghur autonomy. I would argue that his first priority was simply less violence, but it doesn't really seem like anyone is going about this de-radicalization in the right way. That was audio from prayers at the Idkab Mosque in 1997 followed by an imam saying, in Uyghur, those illegal religious activists are not religious people at all. They hold the religious banner to commit murder, shootings, and robberies, and so we call them illegal religious activists. As I'm sure you've noticed, the parallels between Uyghur radicalization and the radicalization of South Asian youth in Western countries are similar. Not identical, but similar. And the lesson is always the same, discrimination leads to radicalization. And the treatment of Uyghurs in China has become increasingly extreme. As a recent piece in the New York Times cites, China has banned fasting during Ramadan, required Uyghur shops to sell alcohol, and prohibited Muslim parents from giving their children Islamic names. That New York Times article is a fairly straightforward walkthrough of what the situation is today. If you're looking it up, it's called What It's Like to Live in a Surveillance State. Recently, there have been a few articles in Xinjiang due, in part, to a first amazing article from the Wall Street Journal on surveillance measures. In that article, we learned that iris scanners are used at certain security checkpoints. 
cars without local license plates are stopped. Voice analyzers are used to identify citizens. All foreign phone calls are monitored. Even purchasing a knife from a kitchenware store requires the buyer's QR code be engraved onto the knife. All citizens of Xinjiang have a QR code with their personal information on it. Census forms ask how many times citizens pray, where they pray, religious faith, how many relatives they have in detention centers, among other intensely private details. There is even a section for police on this form to check off whether the person is safe, average, or unsafe. This is a lot, and not even the half of it. So with all that said, I'm not about to throw out a hot take saying that surveillance is good. Personally, I'm very anti-surveillance. But what I do want to address in this episode is the motivation and framing of surveillance with regards to China, especially as tensions between North Korea, Russia, and the U.S. all escalate. So, it's interesting that the topic of surveillance has become the centerpiece in a renewed conversation about China. After the excellent Wall Street Journal article, which came out at the end of December, there's been a lot of coverage about how the government watches the people of Xinjiang. Here's a smattering of the headlines. China's surveillance state should scare everyone. China's Black Mirror moment. China's terrifying emerging surveillance state. In China, facial recognition is a sharp end of a drive for total surveillance. Last one means, I don't know what it means, it's just random frightening words. But the bizarre thing about all these articles is that, on the whole, they fail to acknowledge that surveillance has gotten out of hand in places like America as well. Obviously not to the same extent, but some of these just flat out ignore it. The Washington Post article, with the weird headline I read, says, The United States, with around 62 million surveillance cameras in 2016, actually has a higher penetration rate than China, with around 172 million. Yet, it is China's ambition that sets it apart. Western law enforcement agencies tend to use facial recognition to identify criminal suspects, not to track social activists and dissidents, or to monitor entire ethnic groups. This is straight up preposterous. It's not even editorializing, it is a lie. One of the funniest jokes this year was when former FBI director James Comey tweeted, on Martin Luther King Day, I like to read his letter from Birmingham jail, to which someone responded, looks like the FBI is still reading Dr. King's mail. The FBI is notorious for tracking social activists and dissidents. Less than a year ago, the federal courts in New York had to settle a case with the NYPD because they were illegally surveilling Muslims after 9-11. I don't think I'm being extraordinarily cynical when I say that reports on China's surveillance policies are an example of concern trolling. Now, concern trolling is, for those who don't know, the act of pretending to be an ally for a cause in order to bring attention to a separate cause. In this case, I would say that a good number of media outlets are claiming to be concerned for the Uyghur population, and maybe even China's population as a whole, when really they just want to encourage the narrative that China is still a villainous country. Obviously, this surveillance is a problem. Obviously, the Uyghur people are suffering. Obviously, there's been some incredible journalism in Xinjiang, and I don't want to diminish any of that. 
But at the same time, we can all acknowledge that the West has a pretty poor track record about caring for separatist violence in China. There was an article on foreignpolicy.com from 2015 where after the Charlie Hebdo attack in France, Chinese netizens made comments like, after the 2014 Kunming attack, did Western media say Kunming is the capital of the world? And after Kunming, the West was unified in criticizing China's human rights, not terrorism. Also, we can't forget that America is far from a benevolent surveyor. Gizmodo's Sidney Fussell was the only person, so far as I could tell, to do a real deep dive on this with an article from the beginning of January titled, For Some in America, China's Looming Surveillance Nightmare is Already Here. Fussell acknowledges, as I do, that America lags behind in terms of extremes, but the spirit of targeted surveillance is still intact here. It's just targeted, for now, at minorities and non-citizens. In Chicago, a secret watch list uses social media and friends lists to map the connections between people, whether or not they've been convicted or suspected of a crime. It's called a heat list and overwhelmingly affects black men. And let's be real, if there was a serious separatist threat in America or other Western countries, don't you think that they would do the exact same thing as China? And probably in a more subtle way. So let me end this episode by saying I don't have a solution to the Xinjiang conflict. I don't know nearly enough about it or about land or geography in China. But I feel confident in suggesting that all countries with radicalization issues should band together, China included, and work on how they can prevent young people from becoming violent extremists. This would be a lot more effective rather than trying to keep up some weird Cold War anti-communist narrative that we only want to work with certain countries. A lot of us are having the same problems. Now, my other suggestion is to just stop surveillance entirely, but I think the previous one would be a lot easier to implement. New episodes of True Crime Asia will be released every other week, wherever you're subscribed. While the best part of podcasts is that they promote free information for all, it does unfortunately cost money to keep this show up on our Squarespace. But if just 18 of you pledged $1 a month on our Patreon, after 12 months, that would keep True Crime Asia hosted online for a whole year. Pledging also gets you access to bonus episodes, fortnightly newsletters about true crime in Asia, and even handwritten postcards from me once a month. I have some beautiful stationery that's just dying to be mailed. So head to patreon.com slash truecrimeasia to support us and find the bibliographies for each episode. True Crime Asia is created, produced, and researched by Melissa Powers. This episode was co-written with my friend Katya. The theme song is Lasha Kyopianga by George Frederick Handel, performed by Bert Alink. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe and please write a review. I will shout you out on our next episode. Join the conversation on our Facebook page and private discussion group. Now before we go, here's a trailer for one of my other favorite podcasts. And it's kid-friendly too. Well, hello, my friends. This is CK from the Mirths and Monsters podcast, proud partner of the Odd Audio Network. Join me, my companion Finn, and my occasionally satanically possessed cat Ray. Puny models. 
as we investigate the real truths behind some of the most wonderful creatures you can imagine. Are trolls really that thick? Or is it just bad press? Are leprechauns really drunken bums? Sort of. But there's a lot more to find out. All you need to do is tune in to Mirths and Monsters podcast with me and Finn. Till next time, Slancha, your good health. <laughs>